With his friends, Cat, Redhead and Jip, Midnight set out for the Never Never Desert, where all poets and explorers go to die. But first he glued on a beard made of cow's tails so as to look as much like an explorer as possible. It would take a long time to describe all the things that happened to them on this journey, which lasted for a thousand miles and led them to places no one had ever seen before. I will try to describe it as quickly as I can. For the first few days, they travelled through grassy plains with trees scattered here and there, where there were many crows and cockatoos flying about, and where sometimes they saw cattle and sheep. Then the grass plains gave way to a rather dry country, with very red earth covered with grey-green scrub, and in the scrub they saw a great many kangaroos and emus leaping and bustling along. Sometimes in the soft red dust, they saw the tracks of bare human feet, and now and again, out of the corners of their eyes, they would see a movement as a black man hid behind a bush and stared at them. For as long as they travelled, a thousand miles, the black people followed and hid and peeped at them. But Midnight and his gang never saw a black person except out of the corners of their eyes. After about a week, they left the scrub and came to a country where nothing grew on the red stony ground except a kind of prickly grass called spinifex. This was very hard country for them to travel in because there was scarcely any water and they would certainly have died of thirst if it had not been for Major and Jip. But always, just when they thought they would have to camp for the night without water, Major came flying back, calling that he'd found some. Sometimes it was a rock pool with pigeons and duck and wallabies around it, and sometimes it was a creek or a small river, and sometimes it was a salt lake. Whenever Midnight found a river or a creek or a lake, he named it after Queen Victoria and made a note in his diary. Presently, the stony desert gave way to the most ferocious country anyone has ever seen. It was all soft red sand hills running east and west, and as the horses struggled to the top of one dune, all they could see ahead of them was more sand stretching for hundreds of miles. There were scarcely even any spinifex there, and the black people got tired and went away for a while and stopped peeping at midnight, and water was very hard to find. Red Ned and the other horse were often so thirsty they were quite weak, and everybody was hungry, though Cat and Jip went out hunting and brought back birds and wallabies and lizards. The only thing that there was plenty of in the Never Never Desert was flies, and they crawled into everyone's eyes, and Midnight's eyes got sore and swelled up, so he called some hills he could see in the distance the Bung Eye Rangers, and made a note in his diary. One day, when they were travelling through this dreadful country, which had nothing living in it except swarms of flies and green budgerigars, they came to the top of a sand hill and saw tracks going away from them over the sand ahead of them. Hurrah! cried Midnight. It's another explorer, and he has camels. And they made haste to catch up with the explorer, because they were all feeling rather lost and lonely. When at last they overtook the explorer, he did not look at all pleased to see them, and he said to Midnight, Ach, du lieber, what do you hear? without your papa. This explorer was a rather miserable German called Johann Ludwig Ulrich von Leichhardt 
Zoo Voss. But in Australia, he'd called himself Mr. Smith, and his two bad-tempered camels were called Sturm and Drang. While Mr. Smith was talking in the midnight, Sturm and Drang made faces at Red Ned and the other horse and spat at them for no reason whatever. I'm exploring, said Midnight, feeling shy that he looked so young. I forgot to mention that his beard had fallen off after one day because the glue had melted in the heat. May I ask where you're going? I too am exploring. I am exploring me. How can you explore you? I will not explain. You would have to be me to understand. Well, said Midnight, blushing, I'm sorry if I seem stupid, but at least you won't mind, will you, if I ride along with you? I can you not prevent. The desert belongs to everyone. Midnight said, I think you're mistaken. The desert belongs to Queen Victoria, and I've named it after her and made a note in my diary. The explorer laughed a hollow laugh and handed Midnight his own diary, in which Midnight read, Today have I this desert, the cosmic symbolical desert named. I do not like that name half so much as mine, and I see by the date that you've named it three days after I did. So I think I'll stick to the name I gave it. You are a free creature. Do what you please, said the explorer with his miserable laugh. You may yourself through the head shoot. I will not offend it be. By this time, Midnight and Cat had decided that they did not like Mr. Smith at all. But they stayed with him for company, as he and Sturm and Drang were the only living things in the desert apart from themselves and the flies. So they travelled with him all day, and in the evening they came down from the sand hills to a white salt lake, which was all surrounded by bones. Midnight stared at the bones with great surprise. He saw horse bones and camel bones and pieces of harness and boots and belts and hats and blankets and many, many smiling human skulls. What is this place? asked Midnight in a nervous voice. It is the end of the outback, said the explorer, where come poets and explorers to die. As he spoke, Sturm and Drang knelt down among the bones, and Mr. Smith got off Sturm's back, and the two camels rolled over and expired. Why do they die? asked Midnight, more nervously still. Because they themselves exploring finished have, said the explorer. Then he shouted something in German and fell down in the bones, dead and smiling. Midnight and Cat were very sad, even though they'd not like Mr. Smith, and they buried him and wrote his name in pencil on a flat stone. Then Cat went out hunting and got some good ducks, and they camped by the salt lake and had supper. When it was dark, and Midnight lay wrapped in his blanket near the campfire, he listened to the mournful crying of the wild dogs in the distance, and thought it was the miserablest place in the whole world. He slept between Jip and Cat, and he hugged them close to him. He was so glad that they were there. He had almost fallen asleep when a wind came blowing along the lake through the bones.
and the bones began to sing. Cat, I'm scared, whispered Midnight, hiding his head in his blanket. So am I, said Cat, and he and Jip crawled into the blanket too. Then the wind died down, and the voices faded, and at last Midnight fell asleep. When Midnight woke at sunrise, he was so eager to get away from the dreadful lake that he did not stop to have breakfast or clean his teeth or anything. All day they travelled, and in the late afternoon, Major flew over them calling a call that meant that he'd found something special. They followed his shadow on the ground and came to a narrow passage in a range of hills between two vast walls of dark red rock, like the walls of a giant's jail. They tramped down this passage and came out into a place like a paddock among the boulders, in which was a long, deep pool with water lilies and ducks floating on it and grass and trees all around it and a great many comfortable caves. Oh, bravo, Major, cried Midnight, throwing Trooper O'Grady's hat in the air. It's another hidden valley and even better. Then he and Jip dived into the pool and had a swim. And when midnight was cool, he began to gather a few stones together for a fireplace so that he could boil his billy and make tea. That's funny, said midnight, as he lifted a yellowish stone. This rock is awfully heavy. Cat glanced at the stone and opened his eyes wide and looked again. Midnight, he said after a moment. Yes, it is gold midnight. You are going to be a millionaire. The next day, Midnight began exploring for gold very thoroughly, and with the help of Jip, he dug up a gold reef running for about a mile under the ground. He put piles of stones around it to show that it was his, and then he wrote a letter to the governor. In the letter, he said that he claimed the reef for himself, but that anyone was welcome to come and look for gold nearby. He signed the letter... P. Daybreak, and gave it to Major to carry to a small settlement on the coast, 200 miles away, where ships sometimes called with beer for the settlers. When Major arrived at the settlement, a sailing ship was lying at anchor there, and Major gave Midnight's letter and a penny for a stamp to the captain, who was most astonished. The ship sailed away, and before long the governor was reading Midnight's letter and throwing his preposterous hat in the air and cheering. The governor dashed off dispatches to the Queen and the newspapers, telling them about Mr. Daybreak's reef. And in no more than two weeks' time, another ship arrived at the settlement on the coast with a most extraordinary crowd of passengers. There were Englishmen and Irishmen and Scotchmen and Chinamen and Afghans and Americans, and they poured off the ship and made with all speed to Mr. Daybreak's reef. Within a week, there was a settlement of tents at Daybreak's Reward, as Midnight's Reef was being called. Within a month, there was quite a big town, with five shops and thirteen hotels and a bathroom. They named the town Daybreak, and they elected Midnight its first mayor. As soon as Midnight had made his first million pounds, he wanted to send it to Trooper O'Grady, for he was worried about all the money that he had lost to O'Grady at cards. 
but Cat said that if Trooper O'Grady ever guessed that Mr Daybreak was midnight, he would find some way to bushrange Midnight's gold and put him in jail. So Midnight was unhappy in his conscience, and it was very irritating to him to be so rich and not to be able to send presents to Mrs Chiffle or Trooper O'Grady or to Miss Laura Wellborn, with whom he was still very much in love. That was when he began to boil his billy with five-pound notes and to shoe Red Ned with gold. At the end of his first year at daybreak, Midnight had three million pounds and he built a fine house with stained-glass windows and crystal handles on the doors. At the end of his second year, he had eight million pounds and he built the daybreak town hall for himself to be mayor in. At the end of the third year, he had eighteen million pounds and he built the Daybreak Opera House and invited a famous actress called the Guernsey Rose to come and sing in it. The Guernsey Rose sent him a picture of herself and said that she was sorry that she was too busy to come but that she hoped to see him some time in London. That said Midnight Thinking. At the end of his third year at Daybreak, Midnight was twenty years old and he'd grown rather tall and very strong and although he was no cleverer than he'd ever been, he was just as good-natured. He still had a brown smiling face and bright blue eyes, and one day, after he happened to have a haircut, Cat remarked, You will be surprised to know that you are almost handsome. This pleased Midnight very much, and made him think again about Miss Laura and about the Guernsey Rose, who had said that she hoped to see him in London. Shall we go to London, he said to Cat, and spend some of our money? Yes, let's. And on the way, I should like to stop at Siam and visit my relations. So Midnight put his money in the Daybreak Bank, except for a couple of million pounds which he kept to spend on the journey, and he and Cat and Red Ned and Jip and Major went to the coast and took a ship to Siam. The King of Siam was very pleased to see his worship the mayor of Daybreak and entertained him most politely, and Cat stayed for a few days with his relations in the Cat Palace. But Cat was not happy there. His relations treated him in rather a superior manner and said that he was rowdy and had got a colonial accent. So after a week, Midnight's gang took another ship and went to London. When the ship arrived at the Tower of London, there was a red carpet on the wharf for Midnight to walk on, and the managers of all the most priceless hotels in London were there, begging Midnight to come and stay with them. But Midnight told them that he had sworn an oath never to go into a hotel again, and he stayed instead at a respectable mansion called the YMCA. Every night Midnight went to the theatre, and after the theatre he had supper with the Guernsey Rose, who was exceedingly beautiful though not so beautiful as Miss Laura. Every day, he and Red Ned went for a canter in the park, and the ladies passing in their carriages leaned out and peered through their gold binoculars and cried, Who? But who is that handsome horse and that almost handsome young gentleman? All over the kingdom, Midnight's gang was a huge success. Major had his portrait painted, sitting on the finger of a duchess and Cat had his portrait painted sitting on the shoulder of a witch. 
Red Ned, who was ambitious in a quiet and noble-minded fashion, won the Grand National and the Derby. And Jip won all the sheepdog trials in Scotland. And Midnight's great triumph came one morning when he opened an interesting-looking letter and read this. The Crystal Palace, 6th of May, 1870. Dear Mr. Daybreak, we have some friends coming to take tea with us tomorrow. Will you give us the pleasure of your company also? We hope you will not disappoint us. Victoria R. The next day, Midnight presented himself at the palace, dressed in a new tartan suit from Bond Street, and was shown into the Queen's drawing room by a priceless butler. The Queen was sitting on her throne at the top of some carpeted stairs, with her long robes trailing down before her. She rose and progressed in a majestic manner down the stairs and held out her hand to Midnight. Mr. Daybreak, said the Queen. Your Majesty, said Midnight, bowing low over the Queen's hand. Let us take tea. And the Queen led the way to the tea table where two distinguished gentlemen were standing behind their gold chairs and bowing. Mr. Daybreak, proclaimed the Queen, allow us to present to you the poet laureate who greatly admires your romantic spirit and the Chancellor of the Exchequer who looks after our money and, of course, is most interested in millionaires. Midnight bowed to the two gentlemen and after helping the Queen into her chair, he sat down at her right hand and watched her pour the tea. Tell us something of yourself, Mr. Daybreak, commanded the Queen when she'd said grace. Who, for example, are your people? My people, ma'am. Your family, Mr. Daybreak. Why, ma'am, there's very little to tell. My father was a well-born Irish pirate who hid out in Madagascar and retired from the sea to a forest in Western Australia where I grew up and still have a property, I hope. Indeed. We fancy that we've heard your father most warmly spoken of by Her Majesty, the late Queen Rana Valona. My mother came from a good colonial family which arrived in the Parmelia. They were of the true old Swan River pioneering breed and spent their first winter in the colony camped on a beach under their grand piano. What a stirring tale, breathed the poet laureate, scribbling notes on his shirt cuff for a poem. But the Queen had been looking very thoughtful ever since midnight had said that his father was a pirate. Our cousin, the late Queen Elizabeth, she remarked after swallowing a piece of crumpet, was in the habit of encouraging pirates and even of making them knights. We're not sure that this was the correct idea. Excuse me, Your Majesty, said the Chancellor of the Exchequer, but it was a very good idea from the Exchequer's point of view. The Queen always got a share of the plunder. Money, 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 sighed the Queen. What was it that you said about money, Poet Laureate, in your rousing poem? This, ma'am, said the Poet Laureate, and he thunderously recited, 
on the opening of the exhibition of Anglo-Saxon Millionaires, 1869. Money to the right of them, money to the left of them, money in front of them, borrowed or plundered. Where did they get the stuff? Had they played clean or rough? When would they have enough? So we all wondered. Who could compare with them? Oh, to be there with them, a millionaire with them, grabbing one share with them, swapping the chair with them, smogging the air with them, renting the fair with them. Losing one's hair with them, goblin eclairs with them. The Chancellor of the Exchequer interrupted. Well, that's jolly good, Poet Laureate. Uh, don't you think so, Your Worship? Oh, it's a fine, thunderous poem, said Midnight, and very polite to millionaires. Thank you, sir, said the Poet Laureate, bowing. The Queen frowned a little and stared at her plate as she toyed with a piece of cake. To return to the subject of pirates, she said. It was surely wrong of Queen Elizabeth to encourage them. Why, it is just as if we were to encourage uh, bush rangers. As she said this, the Queen raised her large blue eyes to Midnight's face and kept them there. Midnight felt a blush creeping up his face and could not think what to say. And Bushrangeon, continued the Queen, with her eyes still on him, is a kind of stealing. I'd not thought of that, muttered Midnight, blushing red as fire. And he swore a silent oath never ever to be a Bushranger again. Well, well, said the Queen, looking him up and down, and at last dropping her eyes, what is past? is past. How old are you, Captain? <laughs> we mean Mr. Daybreak. Twenty, ma'am. And how much money have you? About seventeen million pounds, ma'am. Chancellor of the Exchequer. What do you think? Excellent, ma'am, said the Chancellor. Most suitable. Very well, then, said the Queen, preparing to rise from her chair. Mr. Daybreak, when you're twenty-one, we think we shall make you a knight, a colonial knight, to begin with. Why, thank you, ma'am. Oh, it's nothing. Pray do not think of mentioning it. Richness must be encouraged. With these words, the Queen gave Midnight her hand, and he bowed over it and withdrew from the drawing-room backwards, while the Queen slowly mounted the stairs to her throne. At the top of the stairs, the Queen turned and called, Mr. Daybreak! Yes, ma'am, called Midnight from the other end of the drawing-room. We think that perhaps you'd better marry Miss Laura Wellborn. Oh, certainly, ma'am, gasped Midnight. And not, said the Queen sternly, the Guernsey Rose. Oh, no, ma'am, of course not, cried Midnight, who never had any such idea. 
What a very tidy tail it is, remarked the Queen. And with a weary wave of her hand, she dismissed him and reached for her orb and scepter. Midnight was so dazed and excited that he ran all the way from the palace to the YMCA. And when he got there, he panted out to Cat, The Queen knows I'm Midnight, and she forgives me, and she's going to make me a knight. Extraordinary, murmured Cat in great surprise. I did not know that the Secret Service was so clever. Let's go home, Cat. I'm going to gather up all my money and take it to Miss Wellborn and ask her to marry me. Marry you, said Cat doubtfully. But then he remembered how soft Miss Laura's hand was when she stroked him and how nice it was to sit in her lap and it seemed not such a bad idea. Oh, all right, said Cat. The next day, after saying goodbye to the Guernsey Rose, Midnight's gang went on board a splendid sailing ship and following a long and adventurous voyage, they arrived at the coast of Western Australia, 200 miles from daybreak. As soon as he reached Daybreak, Midnight bought a coach from Cobb & Co and painted Mr. Daybreak, Millionaire, in gold letters on the doors and loaded into it the 16 million pounds that he'd left behind in the Daybreak bank. He put Cat and Jip and Major inside the coach to guard the money and then, with Red Ned ambling alongside, drove off behind his fine team of horses towards the south and Miss Laura Wellborn.